In my notes for this sermon, I wrote that our preaching style at Gilead is Brechtian. And then immediately after that, I wrote in parentheses, you pretentious asshole. And then immediately after that, I texted Rebecca, wrote in my sermon notes this morning that our preaching is Brechtian, then immediately wrote, you pretentious asshole. So you can guess whether that will be in the sermon. And here we are, but I should back up. My friend John is one of the people I use to beat myself up. A couple years ago, John said something about how when he's revising his sermons, he cuts every unnecessary word. I knew it was true. I had heard him preach what is still my favorite sermon ever. It was his first. The image I have of it is him standing at a lectern in this tight, long sleeve black shirt, barely moving, but somehow full of energy, poised there, every muscle at the ready. And that was how his prose was too, taut, restrained, like a bowstring, strong and still. And those of us listening, we got still too and leaned forward, waiting on each word. And as each word arrived, it belonged and it built on the word that came before. And the whole thing gathered power and speed. And I began to unconsciously hold my breath as everything in me walked that tightrope that John was stringing, followed the economy of his thought to its one inevitable yet surprising conclusion. And when he arrived there, all of that power that had been building up in me suddenly broke through, burst out, tears flooding my eyes until I finally relaxed back against the pew, stunned by what I had just experienced. I, on the other hand, in a Gilead sermon, once compared the Gospel of Matthew to flavor-blasted Cool Ranch Doritos. So when John talked about cutting every unnecessary word, I said, I thought I did kind of the opposite here. I thought about his tight constructions and flawless logic, and I remembered how I had once left in a whole paragraph in which I had asserted that if I had been cast as Damon Wayans Jr.'s partner in the 2014 buddy comedy Let's Be Cops, it would have had a better than 18% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which in hindsight is a difficult thing to defend theologically. And, and it's not just jokes that make my sermons like slack lines to John's tightropes. It's, it's parentheticals that distract from where I'm actually going. It's expressions of self-doubt that undercut my pastoral authority, such as it is. It's the way I'll realize while I'm writing that I've written something that's wrong into a sermon. And instead of just taking it out, I'll write like, no, that's wrong and then I'll say the correct thing, and then I'll just leave all of it in. As if I'm making it up as I go, which I am very much not. I don't wanna be disingenuous. I don't want you to, I don't wanna give you the impression that I roll out of bed with this hair. 
we work hard on what we do for worship. Most weeks I'm preaching like a third or fourth draft, which I guess makes it much, much worse that they're still such a mess, that there are still so many non sequiturs, still so much of how the sausage gets made, which is another thing that John told me he looks out for in his sermons. And I was like, buddy, I've preached whole sermons about preaching whole sermons. I choose to leave it in, I'm, I'm doing it on purpose and, and it's much, much worse. But it's also, I'm sure you'd agree, incredibly Brechtian. And this is the part of the sermon where having introduced an obnoxious idea and then made fun of myself for introducing it, I then use that making fun of as a pretext to come back and actually say the thing that I wanted to say. And by Brechtian, I mean this, this nonsense, this goofiness, this self-conscious pointing back to the thing, taking you out of the moment, waving my hands and saying, hey, don't forget, I, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon over here, just a guy talking on Zoom to you about his life and hopefully yours at some point. Don't forget, Brecht didn't want his audiences getting too caught up in the story, didn't want them to get carried away by it, to lose track of what was really happening. He was always finding ways to break down the fourth wall, the barrier between the performers and the audience. He'd use a narrator, which rarely happens in real life, or have the actors hold up signs that said what scene it was or make everyone freeze in a tableau, anything to remind the crowd that they were watching a play, that, that what they were seeing wasn't real, that this wasn't the thing itself, it was only pointing to the thing. There was something important here, but, but it wasn't all of this. In his letters to the churches he helped start, Paul is always pointing out what an asshole he is as if he needed to. And in case you missed it, this is the part where I effortlessly transition into scripture like three pages into the sermon. He's always self-consciously pointing out his flaws, like he apologizes for, for not being eloquent or he calls himself one untimely born, whatever that means, it's not good. And he's always comparing himself to other ministers in ways that make his congregations uncomfortable. In 2 Corinthians, he goes on and on about a group he calls the super, super apostles. And then there's us, he says in his best Eeyore voice, roping the whole church in Corinth in with him. We're, we're not like those slick super apostles we have this treasure in clay jars, which is not a compliment. He's talking about their selves, their clay selves. He's saying your, your vessels look a little handmade, a little earthen. You can see how much work you put into them. You were obviously trying. He's saying their jars are covered in fingerprints. They're the kind of jars that, that if you looked at them, you'd know who they belong to. You know, oh, that's definitely Paul's jar. It's clear. 
But there's another thing that Paul's clear about. There's treasure in his jar, in his shitty clay jar, and actually in everyone else's too, according to Paul. All those handmade vessels, the mistakes so obvious, the work put into them so embarrassingly clear, all the struggle it took to end up with, with that. And yet inside each one, treasure, every one of them brimming with divine light. That's what Paul says right before this part about jars. He says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made that light shine in our hearts. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it, it may be made clear that, that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. That's Paul's theory on why it's okay he's such a mess, why it's better that way, actually. It makes it clear if, if anything good, if anything powerful is, is happening in all of this, in, if any divine light is shining here, it's not the goofball writing this letter. It's not the asshole behind the pulpit or the music stand or the Zoom screen, that old clay jar. If there's anything good in it, you know it has to be God. And the more fingerprints Paul's vessel shows, the clearer that becomes. He's not the thing. He's just pointing to the thing. There's a rule in preaching that you're not supposed to be the hero of your own sermon. It makes you sound like a pretentious asshole and not the kind with the glory of God shining out of it. By my own estimation, I'm dancing dangerously close to that line. Maybe you've noticed or maybe I've artfully obscured it from you. If so, let me catch you up. After shitting on my preaching style for five minutes, I then reinterpreted that style to be both Brechtian and Pauline. Grandiose, not a good look. Here's what I'll say to try to save it. I learned it from watching you. Shout out to 90s kids who get that reference. For most of Gilead's first year, I was terrified to preach to you. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what a Gilead sermon should sound like. I would get so anxious before each one. I think we did way more storytelling services that first year and it was mostly just me trying to dodge preaching. It was torture trying to sit down and write something for you because I wasn't sure how to speak or even who to be in this space until you taught me. And every congregation teaches its preachers how to preach to them, but. The point is, this is how you taught me to let the fingerprint show the clumsily handmade parts, the cracks even, the chips. To put it all out there is what you taught me in your stories, in your prayers, over beer, because you weren't afraid to let them show or probably you were afraid to let them show but you did it anyway. 
I'm still afraid. I blushed and cringed so hard writing this sermon. I kept walking away from it, making this sound. Oh, a lot. But I kept coming back because you ask me to, or you give me space to, or you dare me to maybe, we dare each other, tell me more. Say it your own way, don't, don't edit it, or you know, at least don't edit out the part that's you, the goofy part. Let me see your work, let, let your mistakes show, I'm, I'm here for it. That's what you taught me. You are the heroes of this sermon. Everything I've done tonight is your fault. And if you're here for the first time tonight, <sighs> maybe this doesn't feel like it's aimed at you because you weren't there when all of this happened. But the point of this oversharing worship theme, the point of this sermon, I hope, which if you're saying that, in the second to last paragraph, you know you've done a good job. The point is that this is the kind of community it is so that you can come in with your eyes open. A community of clay jars laboriously worked over, visibly handmade, goofy as hell, maybe arguably too goofy in the preaching department, but that's good because it means when light shines in this space, when it goes deep and gets good as it so often does, as it so often has for four years, when together we touch that power in this space that we have handmade together, when the light of love shines from these goofy ass jars, we know it's clear. There's no mistaking that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us.